Hello and welcome. My name is Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers who shared love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and their costumes that are simply to die for. On this episode of To Die For, we're talking about the iconic 1942 queer-coded horror film Cat People. Designed by Oscar-winning costume designer Renee, who is best known for her work on Cleopatra, which also brought in that Oscar win, Cat People came out in the height of the monster horror boom, combining noir elements with psychological horror and is influential to this day. In addition to the film and the history surrounding it, we'll also be covering fashion history in the 1940s through the lens of lesbianism and queer identity. Joining us for the convo today is founder and director of Salem Horror Fest, Kay Lynch. Welcome to the podcast, Kay. We are so thrilled to have you. Welcome, Kay. Thank you. I'm so excited. So tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love the horror genre. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I'm the director of Salem Horror Fest. And um, Salem, Massachusetts knows a thing or two about, you know, fear <laughs> and how it operates in our society. Um, so I've, uh, that's been one way I've always been drawn to the genre um, as a way to reflect on our cultural anxieties and kind of make some sense of the world um, and, and in some ways make sense of ourselves. You know, it's always been a genre that I could turn to to feel less lonely, to feel like my own fears were justified. Um, so from a very young age, I got I got into horror and kind of just got addicted to that adrenaline and never let it go. Do you have a specific film that you remember, like, was the first movie that kind of really grabbed you? Well, so there's like a couple stages of it. There's like this one film when I was, I don't know, I don't know how young, but I was, I only caught like a, a part of it on TV and it stuck with me for decades before I was able to figure out what that movie was. And I just remembered these scenes of these like little creatures that were kind of like gremlins, but not. Um, <laughs> and they were like in underground tunnels and they're kind of sassy. And uh, it just took me a long time to realize that it was the movie Munchies. Oh, <laughs> <which> is, <laughs> oh my God. A really Deep cut. stupid movie. <laughs> but, <laughs> um but the alert like the mystery of it like what was that movie um you know because these like murderous little creatures um always just kind of stuck with me over time when I finally got to see gremlins at like a friend's sleepover I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't able to get like past 20 minutes in um because it was I thought gizmo was really cute but once they took that pod, the gremlin pod to the, the school and the teacher is like trying to figure out what it is. And then he gets, you know, he, the candy bar and the needles in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> when the gremlins, you know, the mogwai turn into the gremlins for the first time, I'm like, all right, that's enough of this movie. <laughs> I've seen the first 20 minutes many times. And by the time I finally saw the entire movie, it was like this big, great um, rite of passage for me. Um, some other films that I remember, and a lot, um, a lot of the films that kind of hooked me were from like the Saturday afternoon type mm-hmm. films or the Saturday night films, like Joe Bob on Monster Vision. Um, but I remember seeing the movie House, the 1987 one, I believe, um, with the uh, the divorced 
writer, the divorced author in the spooky house. And the thing that really stuck with me in that one was like the flopping marlin fish on the wall. I just could never shake that. Um, (laughs) But the film that kind of like cemented me as a horror fan and made me realize like, oh no, this is actually more than just like a kind of weird fascination. I want to know everything about it was Carrie mm. and it was in high, I saw it in high school on Monster Vision with Joe Bob and I was just en- enraptured by the entire film obviously as like a queer loner kid there's <laughs> <laughs> a lot to identify with in that movie but the very last scene the stinger the jump scare where um Sue Snell's hand pops out from the grave I like almost fell off of the couch and I remember like clutching my chest being like holy shit what is this feeling (laughs) that I'm experiencing you know I got hooked on the adrenaline and have never looked back (laughs) that's so fun I I love hearing about what drew people into the horror genre and it's so fun to see how that manifests into our, our adult our adult life and how it's kind of the one consistency I feel like when talking with people about why they love horror there's always a sense of comfort and nostalgia and also feeling not necessarily seen. I mean, I think seen for a lot of people, but um, seeing yourself in the film as not necessarily the monster or like I'm in this scenario, but the sense of otherness and, and feeling like even not even the content of horror films, but just how the horror genre is looked at by many folks, especially in the film community historically is, has this other genre that doesn't get recognition and, in the real life, I think we often, uh, it's really consistent with horror fans that we feel that sense or we did when we grew up and that's why it holds such a soft, comfortable spot in our hearts. I'm really curious about, um, you know, being that you run a horror festival and just knowing your a little bit about your taste in film, I feel like you have this really wide sort of um, interest, like cross subgenres in horror. Do you have subgenres that you're drawn to or can you kind of feel connected to a lot of different aspects of different subgenres. Uh yeah, I mean, there is so much. That's that's one of the great many great things about horror is that the depth and breadth of subgenres. Um, you know, you can really get very specific and have like a 2030 film letterbox list of <laughs> like <laughs> the most this teeny little thing, teeny little attribute about the the movies and the commonalities that it share. Yeah, um, I don't know. At this point, it's hard to narrow them down just because I I like will pull on a thread and then I'll want to go down that road and mm. you know kind of do a deep dive and then move on to another thing. And then over time, there are certain like touchstones like cat people is a touchstone for me that's a film that i always go back to and that was my gateway into all of val luton's films and so he has become a really important filmmaker for me um the well and speaking of like producers william castle was another thing when i learned about his gimmicks and Mm -hmm. i went did a deep dive into his films and his career and i was fascinated um by that and I guess I would say that it's probably the creators that that more hook me initially mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is like thinking about the creator and their body of work. And once I like one film, 
then I'm like, well, I need to see more. And that sort of unravels the whole tapestry of um, like Italian horror, for example. Once I got into Argento's work, it led me to Bava's work and then his son's work and then Italian horror at large. And so I guess now that I'm thinking about it, it really, my interest tends to come from creator first. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, growing up, it was a lot of franchise stuff, just because it was the most easily uh, available and recognizable. Um, but you know, as I've matured and have seen more, um, it's it it becomes more of like a completist sort of mentality where, um, you know, okay, yeah. I, clearly I'm connecting with something here. Let's go down this road and see what else I can find. Right. Like, let's explore this and see what is fascinating yeah. to me about this. And that's really fun. And it's it's so funny. I feel like you are totally giving, like, I run a horror <laughs> festival because I feel like to run yeah. a horror festival, you have to have that, that interest and in to be able to kind of explore creator's work, which also just speaks to, like, the identity aspect of horror and how it's such a wonderful platform and genre to be able to explore one's identity and looking at someone's body of work. It's really fascinating because you can see their little marks and their little personal touches and kind of explore their personality through their work, which is really, really cool. Um, I'm really curious about what do you feel has drawn you into cat people and Val Luton's work? Um, I'm trying to remember when I first saw it. I think it was just buying the criterion disc mm. just knowing that it's like well i can already tell that i'm going to be into this like yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and i want to have all the criteria the horror films um, from the criterion collection so i just kind of will get them anyway so it was when i finally watched the film the first impression well i think the the most undeniable aspect of um, this film and all of his films is his use of lighting or lack yeah. thereof. You know, the way he um, uses shadows to tell the story, to create dread, and I'm sure to save a lot of money. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it, he's just has, it's such a powerful atmosphere, the film, the film has. And n there's not many overt horror moments in the film. Yet it consistently feels like horrific and dreadful because yeah. it just has that heaviness to it. Um, Irina has this sort of like distant um, connection to the world, uh, which is actually another aspect that I've really is something that's connected to a lot of the films that I am drawn to because in Irina I see some elements of. Um, Oh, shoot. What's her name? Is that Barbara? Carnival of Souls? Yes. Oh, is it Barbara? Yeah, Bar mm. Yes, I, believe, I think so. But I know you No, know, Barbara's about. Night of the Living yeah. Dead. Oh, what's her name? Oh, damn it. I feel... Um, anyway, yeah. I love I love that Mary? Movie. Mary Henry? Is it? The um, the sole survivor the of the yeah. car accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, very close honestly everyone was named Mary or Barbara in that yeah. Time <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and both and Barbara and Night of Living Dead you know the cover of Souls and Night of Living Dead share a lot of similarities but in mm -hmm. these sort of 
uh, hysterical blonde woman. Yeah, <laughs> one of classic. Them. Yeah, <laughs> but but in Carnival of Souls, she has that sort of distinct connection to reality as well, and so I I definitely have related to that, and um, I, I often kind of pair cat people in Carnival Souls in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so those those are the you know some of the main elements that really stood out most to me when I first saw it, and um, you know I got into the commentaries and I just kept unraveling and that's what got me into his other body of work, um, and it's just it, this is his first and I think clearly almost undeniably his masterpiece actually I think he's got a a couple at least maybe. Definitely two, maybe three, <laughs> but I think I, I don't think it gets better mm. than this film yeah. for him. Yeah, yeah, I know this is one of the ones that I I always find myself coming back to as well. And like I was telling you earlier, Kay, I just I forget how much I love it every time I watch it because you don't get a lot of these torn, monstrous females at the time. You get we were just you know, coming out of the height, and we're still in most of the height in this period of these classic universal monsters, and the monsters, with the exception of the bride, were all men. And and in my research, what I found interesting was that they compared it to the Wolfman a little bit, and how they were saying that, you know, Talbot you know, is in a foreign land and is fighting with this animalistic instinct within himself. But then Irina is now also in a foreign land. It's not foreign to us as Americans, but she's the foreigner in a foreign land who's battling with this like sensual animalistic side to herself that is quote unquote, like not American at the time and like is really foreign to us as a concept of at this time. And yeah, it was, it was an interesting history to, to dive into. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go through some of the history if y'all are okay with that. <laughs> I would love to get into that. Yeah. So um, as Kay was saying, this was Val, Val, uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Luton? Mm-hmm. Val Luton. So Val Luton, um, he was tasked to write this by Charles Kerner, um, who was the studio head of RKO at the time. And the, the radio studio was on its downward spiral. Moving pictures had become more uh, popular, especially during wartime. We were right in the throes of World War II in this country and in the world at large. And people were going to the movies to escape things. And... Um, he was had been a writer. He was a novelist prior to writing this film, which I thought was really interesting. And that's what they attest to the depth of each individual character because he was a novelist first. And I can I can really see that because each this is a slow burn. It's not like a creature feature. It is about a creature, but it's not a creature feature. And each character has so many layers to them that you didn't really get from films at the time, which makes this piece stand out. Totally. Um, so when he he was he adapted radio plays and he was also a research assistant for RKO and then he was tasked to bring this to life. But basically, just from Charles going, I want to film about cat people. Go. And he was like, Okay. Well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so he got together with Jackie's uh, Toro, who was the director, and the three of them, him, Charles, and Val, sat down and they wrote the film together. And um, he wanted it set in contemporary New York because a lot of the creature features at the time were period pieces. They were set in different countries, different lands, but he wanted it in New York. And I think New York 
is a really good place to to set it not just because I'm biased because I live there but and I'm from there but it is there's a seediness and a dirtiness to New York that you don't get from other cities and the scene that always creeps me out the most is when Irina is following Alice through that that pass through in Central Park and I've walked that yeah. pass through and it's at night and you don't know if there's cars coming and the light is is super infrequent and it's just brick walls you know 12 feet high on either side of them and it's it's super eerie and dark and scary and um so New York is I felt like a really effective place to to put this to this movie in so yeah it's it's really interesting so let's let's get into it from the beginning and I've got you know I've got my breakdowns we've all got our breakdowns so I'm very excited for everybody's <laughs> if I could I just wanted to comment yeah. on um sort of the inception of this film Val essentially like subverted every aspect of what universal monster the universal horror was doing at the time yeah. mm-hmm. his he was his, he was tasked to basically just replicate it but in doing so he did almost the exact opposite of everything that they were doing and yeah. um, i think it's another reason why this film is um just so potent and um, just offers so much more depth than, like like we said, the universal horror is a lot more fantastical um, being period uh, pieces. They're more difficult to relate to. Right. Um, and they're definitely more geared towards sort of the spectacle. And you see the monsters in those movies. You actually never do see a monster in this film. You mm-hmm. see the implication of her turning into a real leopard like a you know but you don't we never get this hybrid sort of makeup job but it it doesn't have any less of an impact because of it yeah mm-hmm. and i found that a lot of the films at this time too and and that seems to be a commonality with wartime pictures world war ii vietnam like all these different eras is that um, a lot of the characterization is very internalized because I feel like it's humans, human nature, co- collective cultures looking at, to ourselves as we're looking at the atrocities, you know, opposite us on the outside world. So right. like like you were saying, these really fantastical fantasy pieces, and now we have this one where it's all about self-reflection, about who we are as people, who we aren't as people, who we're not allowed to be as people, what people and we can use Oliver as like the man and the Mm -hmm. you know the system what they're telling us that we should be versus the people that we are trying to be ourselves so it's yeah there's a there's a lot of really amazing amazing layers in this film yeah and it's it's interesting too that I think at the time um kind of the landscape of films really like pre-60s that characters weren't really allowed to be totally and fully imperfect and so a lot of their imperfections had to be internalized um and not to mention the Hayes code um, thank you thank you Hayes code for (laughs) internalizing all of our struggles um (laughs) um, but I think that that was also really prevalent because this film does deal with sexuality in such an internal way that you know I I think Hayes without Hayes code I think that it would make sense for that to be sort of an internal struggle in this film but because of the Hayes Code, any queer exploration is going to be subtext. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what I find really interesting about this film and uh, really Irina exploring the otherness, which is this 
monstrous sexuality within her that doesn't really it doesn't make her a monstrous villain she's the monstrous protagonist and and hero really um which is you know something that we didn't really get a lot of especially then yeah for me for me personally the um i do view this film um through a trans lens or Mm -hmm. i relate to it um uh through that uh in many ways but that that the trans lens is one of them um, but something in sort of unpacking that and trying to figure out what is, what are the trans themes in this film? Um, and, you know, obviously there's this sort of um, impulse to just uh, immediately connect tr- um, animal transformation films mm-hmm. to sort of like trans themes. But I, I don't think, at least not in this film, I don't think it's a good parallel because she is struggling with herself. And it's not that the panther is who she was always meant to be, who she was always meant to be. She's already who she was meant to be. She's just not allowed to be it fully. Mm. And so for me in this film, the transform uh, arena as the leopard or the violent aspects uh, impulses that she has are a, a materialization of the stress that she's under and sort of lashing out at the society that mm-hmm. is oppressing her. And so her vicious self is really a reaction to not being able to be her authentic self. And that to me is more authentic to at least my trans experience in that I've always been K, I've always been who I am, but under a layer of societal bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I think that this film really explores that in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. I noticed that a lot in her costuming too, where when she was having those moments of struggle and she was going to the zoo and then coming back home, there was that amazing black coat that she was wearing that is so sheen it's like the panther's fur and it has that black coloring but then she was wearing the suit that you see her in at the beginning of the movie where it's like this panther is on top of her and then she's trying to suppress this inner person and it's you can see the struggle of texture the struggle of color Mm -hmm. and it's so visually stunning with the with the struggle that's happening on screen yeah, absolutely. And I, that does kind of speak to sort of the the culture around queer identity and fashion at the time uh, in general. Um, kind of right before this in the 1930s, there was this really vibrant lesbian culture, albeit underground, um, being cultivated in Paris. And even at that time, while it was still like within fashion, fashion in general was starting to become more mainstream. People were wearing suits. You know, we had, you know, Marlene Dietrich and Catherine Hepburn and Joan Crawford appearing in menswear um, in film. Um, I think Marlene was probably the biggest touchstone of like a, a fluid identity um, expressed through fashion at the time and is still influential for that today. But kind of right before this in the 1930s, people were experimenting with fashion and lesbians particularly and, you know, queer people, but it wasn't necessarily through the binary lens of feminine and masculine at the time. That really started to come to light in the 1940s. Um, Before the 1940s, it was kind of like uh, uh, queer women had to be, like it was weird for a queer woman to be dressing feminine. Um, Mm. And then in the 1940s, which well went into the 1950s, that's when you started to see the butch femme roles um, in like working class gay culture being 
very, very much the way to go. And that was really radical at the time, frankly. And labeling in this way for queer women really gave a sense of visibility while, you know, despite being extensively criticized for, you know, upholding heteronormative standards. But really, it can be argued that this was, um, you know, expressing identity through fashion only was beginning to become mainstream. And so it was kind of new to explore identity through this way. And many women even switched between those two sort of styles and, and modalities. And so it, it cat people came out at a really interesting time in fashion where it was not quite like like the butch femme thing um, in fashion and in identity was sort of just beginning to sprout. But we still had this sort of like the 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 feminine mask uh, identity through style was ha- very particular. Um, yeah, and you know, queer women, more notably, um, oh goodness, what's her name? Is it Natalie something? I think it's um oh yeah, Natalie Barney in the nineteen like twenties and thirties was sort of like the person that is most known for like this Parisian lesbian culture flourishing Mm. mostly because she was an American playwright just living as an expat. She was known sort of for being really feminine, having plenty of uh, lesbian lovers and everyone was really confused because they're like, she's so feminine, but she's dating all of these people wearing monocles and high collars (laughs) and it doesn't make sense. And so that was sort of, Quat people was on this cusp of like intentionally binary lines in like a radical way at the time and then having to be in these two roles and femininity not being queer at all to the mainstream eye or or the standards, the mainstream standards. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do too with, you know, when women were pushed into the workforce because all of the men were at war. Right. We talk about this. How the Exactly. <laughs> how the silhouette became more masculine because it was more acceptable to be in the workforce with a broader shoulder, a broader square shoulder line, a peaked lapel collar like a man, a wider leg trouser like a man. And some of that, those shapes bled over into feminine wear. So like the the, the suits that Alice and Irina wear are these masculine cut suits because now women were working. Women were doing men's work, mm-hmm. which is really, really interesting. And then, I mean, obviously, like this this movie's 42, so I'm curious, and we could talk about this in another episode too, but like what happens then after 45 when the war ends and then you have the introduction of the Dior new look and you don't have to ration anymore? Like did <laughs> queer women have to then sub- go back to subverting their, you know, fashion because it became hyper feminine when women were pushed back into the home yeah it's it's really interesting i i I feel like um in the film sense the 1930s were and 20s were arguably more openly queer and exploring and experimenting with identity in a way that wasn't really happening in the 1940s but it was still kind of because of the Hayes code much more shrouded in mystery and harder to analyzed through their costume just because menswear was popular for everyone um and so and because we didn't have this like the structure that a lot of queer women were putting in place of like the um butch and femme i feel like that was a little too new in like the early 1940s i feel like i associate Mm. that more with like late 40s 50s um Mm. but you know at this time gay bars were becoming more popular and there was more visibility um, that was radical at the time, but in film, I feel like film's always a little bit behind, especially then. Um, 
and especially with the Hays Code. Oh, yeah. Um, and so a lot of this reading, you know, while you can see the structure um, in Irina's outfits, which, you know, is is amazing just because the film itself is sort of a little bit fashion forward, not only because it has an Oscar winning costume designer, but also because Irina herself is like a fashion illustrator. And so mm-hmm. there is that element of like, is she being trendy and cool? Is she being like a little bit gay? <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to say. I don't know. I, I'm curious, Kate, if you could speak more to your kind of uh, uh, analysis on this film through the lens of identity, because it totally can be read a lot of different ways. And especially at the time, I think that people, well, and and now when people analyze of that time, leave out the trans reading and the trans narrative and kind of more of a, give it a little bit more of a generalized binary structure, just because a lot of these films appear very binary because that was mainstream at the time. I'd love to hear more about sort of your take on that. Right. Well, like specifically to the fashion, I really love this time period because of that sort of blending. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the binary was starting to get obscured as a practicality. You know, they didn't really have a choice in the matter. <laughs> it's just the way. And like for me personally, um, well, so I'm like uh, eight or nine months into my transition and I've been shopping and trying to figure out what is my style. And um, my husband, who is way more um, educated in fashion than I am, would help me, uh, you know, look at clothes and cut, help me sort of uh, understand the type of clothing that I'm drawn to. And it ended up being that I was naturally drawn to clothes that were sort of um, very popular or made popular in the 40s, like uh, ruching, you know, with the boxy sort of look, the boxy shoulders. You know, it's very convenient for someone who was born biological (laughs) male that it's like... Cool. Okay, I can. It works you know, for you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The ideal, the ideal woman was a little bit bigger and curvier, and so um, you know, it it's also been kind of assuring to me as well to be able to explore that time, um, because the fashion was geared towards those sort of body figures, but other other ways that I think this film touches upon some trans themes is uh, arenas desire to be like other women and knowing that she's not you know she's constantly comparing herself and um you know i think that that's something that is part of my experience in trying to um figure out uh you know to what degree am i in control of being able to feminize myself versus you know, at some point you, you've got what you got. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think that's a struggle that Irina is going through is she recognizes that she's different. She um, wants to be, you know, a certain way that society won't allow her to be. And um, the more it's pushed upon her, the more violent and angry, you know, she gets and which pushes into even a, a more broad theme of se- sexuality. I think that's a, a big part of um, Irina's struggle is this sort of, I don't know, it's like, you won't like me when I'm horny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, like, watch out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, if you push that button, you just don't turn it Right. Uh, which I think is really interesting. Something that I... I've been thinking about when thinking about, you know, discussing this today 
is, you know, Irina's situation and and then looking at her journey in this film as, you know, just um, a parable for, you know, a character Mm -hmm. piece, you know, like if she's not really a cat person, but she, she is going through this struggle, what is the version of Irina, her authentic self? Who is Irina Unleashed? Mm. And it got me thinking of Gilda, because I think Gilda is this very sexually open woman. Um, and she is has so much power and control. Um, and she's able, she's in this love triangle. In a lot of ways, I feel like that Irina and Gilda are like on different sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, watching this movie you just want to be like let her be yeah. let her live <laughs> let, her be, I know. <laughs> let yes. her be her cat because person as much, <laughs> yeah as much as you know as much as she says that she wants to be this perfect wife and this have this nuclear family you know it's something that is being very aggressively put pushed on her by Oliver mm-hmm. and when we get to the sequel you know it's even more stark that juxtaposition because all right arena's now dead she comes back as a ghost and oliver's living the life that he always had wanted with alice and so that film just further explores these queer themes of um you know in in, in, arena may be a ghost but she's a happy ghost Mm -hmm. yeah she's like and a sexy ghost yeah (laughs) very very sexy she's stunning and beautiful but it's so interesting to see that she's at peace Mm. Um, in that film and she's able to be herself and connecting with in my reading a younger version of herself Mm. this young girl who is at the beginning of her journey of being told that she can't be who she is um so i I, you know and that plays right into the shadows you know i mean there's Mm. just this so much darkness they're surrounded by it. it's this oppressive atmosphere there's danger that lurks just in the corner of the room that is so compelling yeah absolutely yeah. it's kind of like Irina is very much her internal self on the outside and then the external um, um struggles and implications on the inside and and it's really cool to see a character like that manifest which i think kind of does encompass a lot of sort of identity exploration that we see across horror we see sort of this ideal self and then the internal monster or struggle on the inside and and that kind of exploration i'm happy that you brought up the sequel um because i recently learned that the costume designer for that one it wasn't uh renee but it was the costume designer for citizen kane and it's a wonderful life Um, and a bunch of other like wild massive things and he worked a lot um, with Edith Head um, and earned an Oscar on the facts of life and so both films were costumed (laughs) by people who won Oscars for costume design which especially at the time was uh, you know a field that did not get a lot of recognition and respect. And I think that that's just like fun little fact that I learned. Yeah. Well, it wasn't until 1949 when Edith Head was like, um, we need a category. Can you please put this category in the Oscars? Yeah. (laughs) And wasn't Edith Head not classically trained or I don't know what the term is for fashion, but like wasn't she kind of like an anomaly she just yeah well so she was an (laughs) she was an illustrator and an art teacher and she actually would um use her students because she 
she could kind of draw, but really she could teach it better than she could draw. And she would use her students' illustrations as sketches for her design meetings. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so that's cool. Yeah. Actually, it's so interesting that you say that. One aspect about this film that always kind of, it's not something that irked me, but I always just kind of chuckled at was that, you know, in the very first scene, she's, you know, we are introduced to these characters and there's this sort of like meet cute mm-hmm. between all mm-hmm. of her and Irina. And he's like, oh, yo, what do you, what do you do? What are you drawing? Who, you know, what do you do? And she's like, oh, I'm a fashion illustrator. But she was drawing the painting, <laughs> the leopard. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, that's what she was. She just, the, yeah. the, the drawing that she tore up and, you know, th- and throws and accidentally litters. <laughs> um, and so I've always kind of thought, like, why is she drawing the letter? <laughs> She's like, that is funny. Um, portraying herself, yeah. but it really it it lends right into the fact that she, that is her sort of that's one of her one aspect of her wardrobe. Yeah, is right. The, it's kind of her fashion, her, yeah. her fashion, and her head for herself. I know, though. I, I mm-hmm. do think that it's funny that that was what they um, started out with, and I'm. I've always been curious as to like exactly their reasoning for it. Cause I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. if it's like they didn't mean for that to be a thing or if it was actually something that they wanted to tell a deeper story. But I think on like paper, you could say like, maybe she should have been drawing a dress inspired by the Panthers. Yeah. Maybe she was just like practicing or doing warm ups or something too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's very funny that that. Getting getting inspiration. Right. I mean, maybe, maybe she made that. Um, yeah. That black. Coat yeah, and that cape from the doodle session. <laughs> doodle session. Um, yeah. Uh, going back to that that opening scene, another thing that I really like about this film, I think it carries over into a lot of other Luton films, and has a lot of connections to studios today, like A twenty four. Cat People is like a romance melodrama with horror in yeah. it. Versus a horror movie with a romance in it, you know, and Universal is horror yeah. first, and almost only, you know, there's melodramatic yeah. aspects and some romance in that as well too. But I think you know a lot of my favorite movies end up being real situations where an element of horror gets brought into yeah. it, and I think that's what gives Valutin's work a little bit more prestige and sort of. Um, complexity yeah yeah even just talking about that first scene so I was trying to what after Emma and I spoke about this on our gender identity episode I have I've now this watch around went in with the with a queer lens with a queer reading of this film and I was like trying to pick up on I'm not queer so I was trying to pick up on these little motifs I just forced the queer readings down your throat (laughs) I'm like all horrors gay (laughs) And I'm learning and I love it and I see it now and I'm like, oh my goodness. So I'm curious about, I was watching the brooches and maybe I was reading a little bit too hard, but she was wearing some seahorse brooches. And so the, my brain went to, and maybe this sounds totally stupid, but if you're getting a trans reading from it, how male seahorses are the ones that carry children. And so, oh my so I don't know if like that was maybe, or if it was just a cute applique. Oh my god, I never, I did not notice that, Jolene. <laughs> You're learning. <laughs> so I got that reading from it. And then Alice wow. later in the film is wearing the canary brooch. So that one is a little bit more obvious of like, you know, after she kills the canary, she's then going after Alice. But then I also wrote down 
that all of Oliver's pieces, except for the wedding piece, his suit, except for his wedding suit, is tweed. And he kind of looks like a scratching post. So maybe is he struggling that like he wants to be taken over by a panther too and is like too afraid because he's so American man, like rejecting the gumbo for the American pie. (laughs) These readings are impeccable, Jolene. These might be like my favorite readings that you've done. They're so recently. Good. I've never heard of these. I'm just gonna say yes to all of them. All of those are right. Okay. <laughs> awesome. I do. Yeah, I would too. Well, with Oliver, it's like clearly he's drawn to Irina, even though he wants. He says that he wants something right. else. But he, there's some, you know, their first date, they're hanging out in the dark. Right, like, <laughs> right, and she's like singing by the window. <laughs> yeah, you would think that maybe that was a red flag if it wasn't sort of, if he was looking for maybe a more traditional sort of <laughs> relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be an element of, you know, this this man who um, doesn't, isn't fully conscious of what he's being attracted right. to. Um, and, you know, maybe he's saying he wants, you know, what Alice represents, but really what he wants is for Irina to tear him apart. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's like, rip me a new one. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I tried really hard to find like, um, very like obvious queer, queer coding in the costume design. Um, and I found more to do with like the feminine and masculine than I did with the queer identity. I was trying really hard to find like color pictures of the costume oh, design. I know. Which They're so hard. It's a little bit impossible. And, you know, sometimes like colorized photos are like just people's interpretation and not accurate. And I tried to see if there was any like purple, um, purple uh, costume design or, or gowns or um, violet motifs, because that's a really big indicator of queer identity and lesbianism in particular. Um, and the just the color purple has this really wide history uh, in fashion history uh, when it comes to queer identity. Um, but when I looked at sort of just like even the poster for Cat People, the illustration of her shows her in um, this kind of like ruby red dress. And it felt very, just very traditionally feminine from the mm. poster. Um, but I honestly feel like her fashion in the film differs a lot from how she was portrayed in marketing. Um, but marketing again, marketing yet again. Thanks, Jennifer's body. (laughs) Yes, like we never. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And I, you know, I. But you know, I kind of liked that she, in every single illustration of her. I mean, even in the Curse of Cat People, I feel like uh, one could say that maybe it's showing even further that she's going so far feminine. Um, that you could read it as sort of a trans allegory um, mm. that her identity on the outside is so purely feminine, um, but she still has this internal struggle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, um, I, I think that the pool scene has some queer undertones in it. Um, you know, well, one, she's scantily clad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and being, you know, pursued by, by Arena. Um but just to comment on how beautiful I think that swimsuit is in that mm-hmm, scene. Yes. Um, it's just, it's, she, and she looks stunning in it. And then of course, Irina just like tears up her robe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely an Esther Williams swimsuit. That was like the biggest, and she's, and her house still makes swimsuits. So if you ever want an Esther Williams swimsuit, you can still buy one and they still make them. It's, and it, and did you notice that it had a zipper on the back too? Yeah. Like people, that was crazy to me that like 
you know, you're going swimming with a metal zipper, but um, yeah, no, just the fact that she was scantily clad. I know I read in the remake in the eighties, um, she was topless in that scene. I've never seen the remake, but obviously because of the Hayes code, they couldn't do that vulnerability, but they, they were talking about how they wanted to showcase that, that skin vulnerability. Mm. It appears like she's new. Right. Um, when we see her treading water mm-hmm. there, you know, it, 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 it looks like she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's kind of, I don't know, the difference between, I don't know if we've ever directly compared the 1940s to the 1980s, as, especially as far as like, like queer readings of, mm. in film. But it's, it's, I mean, Cat People 1982 goes directly into the erotic. Um, oh, does it? And, and it goes, it goes fully into um, the erotic horror film territory. Which I mean, and it, it and it doesn't like not make sense, but yeah, it, it's it's definitely not subtle. It's very intentionally sexy. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Um. And but but yeah, I don't know. Just the um landscape of um horror in the 1940s to the 1980s, it's like almost a complete 180. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, as soon as you drop the Hayes code, it's like, Wah! yeah. <laughs> Although one one connection that I can see from the 40s to the 80s and, and, and connecting to the fashion of this film, um, are you familiar with the new wave opera singer Klaus Nobel? Yes, oh my I goodness. love new wave. <laughs> yes, well he he's got those boxy shoulders yeah. and a lot of his aesthetic is just sort of a black and white. Yeah. Um, and and that's uh, um. Yeah. So that was early 80s, I believe. Yeah, you saw a massive menswear revival in the you 80s. You did, yeah. And a lot of 40s yeah. came back in the 80s, which was interesting. Oh, did Yeah. Yeah, because you had the the, the, that the boxy shoulders, you had the, these shoulder pads, and you had, like, right. the nipped-in waist, but then, you know, the A-line skirts that came out for women, and, like, the wide pant came back. Yeah. It was, like, more, it was more like office wear. It wasn't so much day wear, but, yeah. Although I do think that there was sort of this um, queer reclamation in fashion in the 80s that we didn't have oh. in the 40s. And so with yeah. kind of um, this sort of 1940s workwear coming back into style, um, you saw a lot of queer artists and musicians and, and actors and club kids, you know, taking these motifs and these silhouettes and um, turning them into these beautiful works of wearable art. Um, mm. that you didn't see. I mean, I know it existed, but you didn't see it in the 1940s. I mean, we don't have a lot of documentation of that. And so it was kind of cool to see that um, kind of fluidity come to light in the 80s. Um, and while I think that the the lens and maybe the male gaze of this reclamation um, in film didn't always land because we had a lot of films in the 80s that were very much intentionally sexual from both ends of the spectrum whether it's objectification or reclamation Um, lots of boobs lots of boobs um (laughs) but uh you know it's just interesting that you can see these aspects of fashion come back and then be reclaimed in in new ways and we get to see um throughout time different subcultures and different groups of people um putting their own spin on it that we didn't get the, or they rather didn't get that visibility that they did in the 40s um yeah. you know aside from mm-hmm. i mean really the only queer visibility in fashion was the hot topic of the butch femme lesbian and that was that was kind of it and, and it was a hot topic it wasn't necessarily something that was widely accepted but it was something that people talked about um was that sort of before the 60s and before sort of the youth quake and 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 before trends really as we know them 
began to kick off, it was cool to kind of see the difference between how um, just just the landscape of that and, and the landscape of how queer people explored their identity and were beginning to explore their identity more openly through fashion and through mainstream fashion, but that they didn't have the same, I don't know, they didn't have the same silhouettes, the same um, accessibility to different kinds of fashion as they did, mm. you know, beginning in the 1960s and further onwards um, at that time. And so it is kind of interesting comparing those two decades because it was so different. So let's talk about Alice for a little bit because she's, you know, like this, she's the American girl. Mm -hmm. She's the quote unquote girl next door. She's the one that Oliver halfway through the film and halfway through his marriage realizes, oh, I'm actually not in love with Irina. Or I don't think I am anymore, but I think I'm in love with Alice. And it, it becomes really apparent that like, and I wonder if this was a writing choice or a studio push choice to have him leave Irina for Alice. Because when they're sitting in that restaurant, they're looking for Irina and he orders the American pie and she orders the Boston cream donut. Like that's such American desserts. <laughs> like, like they're just... You know, like they're they're fulfilling this like idealized like baby boom after post war. Even though we're not post war yet, but this post war landscape of what America begins to look like, or this dramatized version of of what America begins to look like in the nineteen fifties. So yeah, I, I love Alice even because she's um, even though she ends up representing sort of like the nuclear family, and she's a little bit more of what Oliver says that he he, he had been looking for. She's so open. You know, I mean, she just she. I love the scene when they're in the the restaurant and she's talking to Irina and like she's always so nice. Yeah, you know I mean, she's always tried to be really nice to Irina. Um, in fact, I think there's quite a progressive and sort of healthy um, approach to their relationship in the sense that you know all, here's this man um, in a committed relationship who's so close with another woman mm -hmm. that um, that he's friendly with. Like, I, I, I didn't get the sort of feeling that they were attracted to each other at first. Right. Like, I did, it did feel very uh, platonic, mm -hmm. um, but, like, that they had a good relationship, a good back and forth. Right, and they worked together. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I love when, before the Moisestra line, um, Alice is like, you want to know anything about this town? You come to me. She's like, I'll hook you up. Like, she's just so free and in control at the same time. Um, and her outfits reflect that too as well. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of, um, well, in, in reading about the fashion of the time and some of the things that dictated how, how it ended up, is like because of the... Um, the rations of fabric, you know, that had to go through the war. So um, outfits uh, had to be more efficient in their fabric use. So we got sort of like a shorter cut. Um, and, you know, certain fabrics weren't available. Um, but that you could go nuts with the hats yes. and the accessories. So she, Alice in particular, has some like choice hats. So yeah, it's got, yeah, kind of the excess of you know mm -hmm. everything. It, it goes to show that I I think that Irina is obviously more um, insecure, not really sure of her place. And in contrast to Alice, who um, is very much taking what she feels is hers through her wardrobe, 
Yeah. Um, and she's a working girl, so she's making her own money. So she's buying these things that make her happy. Right. And she's just great. And she doesn't, she doesn't feel like an outcast. Um, right. And you can, that's, I think, one of the strongest things you can see through uh, the contrast in um, Alice and Irina's costuming is that Irina is, while there's some amazing pieces, it's still demur compared mm-hmm. to um, Alice, who's kind oh, of, yeah. you know, giving a little bit Samantha Jones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you get the, you get the, you get the, mm, the feeling or the implication that like she doesn't need Oliver. Right. You know what I mean? Like she she doesn't dote over him. She doesn't pursue him. Really, there are scenes where she's giving him advice on his relationship. Yeah. So I just love that. It just seems like such a healthy approach to to um you know these sort of relationship dynamics of how um, supportive she is of the relationship. And in fact, it was her idea to um, seek help mm-hmm. for Arena. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a dynamic that I think gets lost in the CF films that don't have a healthy dynamic. And it's, it, you know, really shows that we're really expecting a cat fight. Like we're really truly right. expecting that <laughs> in, in, in films with this kind of triangular a triangulation dynamic it's really refreshing i think to see that beyond like oh you know alice and irena they you know they they have you know desire for each other more so just like a, a care in that alice is kind of the it's it's represents everything that's holding irena back while at the same time being sort yeah. of safety for irena um and finding mm-hmm. safety through the standards of um you know of the atomic family <laughs> um, yeah. and, and of this time period where it didn't feel like there was much safety. And so finding a person that is so comfortable within themselves um, is attractive, not even necessarily as a partner, but also as someone in, uh, in their life in general, because they're looking for that yeah. validation that they are a person and that they are okay, despite all of these harsh um, societal standards. Yeah, Alice always struck me as the more mature one out of the two of them. I mean, her 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 wardrobe reflects that, but even just personality wise, where you're saying, "Okay, like she's more secure. She has this healthy relationship. She she works, you know, for a living." And and maybe Irina is half. I don't know if I fully got even even with my queer reading. My <laughs> your fantastic um, queer reading. <laughs> Um, I don't know if I ever got the sense that like Irina lusted after Alice in a sexual way. I always looked at it as she has the idealized version of what Irina wants to be. And that ultimately is why she gets jealous and envious because I think she wants to be this healthy person. She wants to be, you know, like the quote unquote cool girl. Like she doesn't want to be like other girls, but Mm -hmm. she isn't and she's struggling with that. So I feel like that even speaks further to yeah. the trans reading of this film. Definitely. There's like this envy there and, and it goes you know, to that line earlier. She's saying how she's not like the other woman or you know, it, people don't understand what it's like to want to be like the other woman. And, and yeah, I think because I never I don't really get that Irina even wants Oliver. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think I think what she wants is to be viewed the way that he views Alice. Right. Craves um, that, like and, val- validity. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's having that validation. And so I think that, yeah, like like you had said, that the if her um, her violence towards Alice is just out of, like, anger that she can't be 
um, she she feels like she can't be that. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. And, and also just that in the 40s, feeling like, you know, I, I think that queer people to this day, but even more so the further you go back in time, there is a lot of um, sort of this sense of feeling like heteronormativity is the only way that you are going to find happiness and find value and mm. find yourself. And, and it can be a really deep, dark struggle for many when you're kind of trying on, you know, this heteronormative or, or cis uh, or straight, you know, sort of identity um, because it's all you see around you, like literally, especially then when there wasn't the internet to even go down these rabbit yeah. holes yeah, um, to feel like really frustrated as to why you're not getting the validation in your own identity and sexuality um, and just sense of self that you should be. And and it can, you know, I can imagine that there's there was a lot of wrestling with like, it must be me, um, you know, like there were, I remember there was a conversation I had with my grandma about, um, I was asking her about the 60s because I'm writing a film set in the 60s and just sort of like the landscape of being a teen in the 60s even. And so that environment was even further um, personified uh, in, in the like the 40s and the 50s, but that yes, queer people existed and maybe their friends picked up on it, but no one talked about it. Um, yeah. And so, um, and, and even then to speak to the, the trans experience, I think that that was not talked about at all. And there was so little visibility there and was even a deeper struggle than, um, you know, just being gay um, in the sense of like wanting to date other women um, wanting to date men like that experience while it was um you know ostracized was at least you know there were gay bars you know there was really not a mm -hmm. space for trans people to express their identity in the mainstream um even if and, and if there was that they of course would be ostracized alongside many you know queer people but you know just kind of you know long story short seeking that validation through heteronormative relationships and not getting satisfied not being satisfied by it and and still seeking yourself and longing for the sense of self that you see in others yeah i, I definitely have had that experience and when i watch this movie i want to like shake irena mm -hmm. <laughs> you know i want to be like girl like you have you are what you are who you are like you and, and you are who you want to be if you just kind of say fuck everyone else and you know it ends up being really tragic and then i realized i'm like i've done the same exact thing i've done very self-destructive things i put myself in harm's way in pursuit of validation mm -hmm. um i totally have been there and even with my within myself of like i'm almost i'm almost 40 years old and i only just realized that i was trans in the last couple of years like it's it's been a long process and it, a lot of it is because I didn't really understand what it actually meant to be trans. I had a lot of misconceptions and once things started to clarify for me, I was able to look at some very key moments in my life or key behaviors that I'm like, oh my god, like how did I not see yeah. this? Mm. Um, you know, and and it, I guess it's another way that I can relate to Arena where, I, where I'm like, I was so close this entire time. Like, you know, I was always just like one. Right around the corner. From, <laughs> yeah, from knowing what is going on. And what I had done was I had misattributed a lot of my depression and anxiety to just just being depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not trying to to belittle that in of itself, but it was just, I thought I was feeling those things just because I felt those things. Mm -hmm. Over time, I realized I was feeling those things because there was something underneath that I wasn't addressing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it it took me a long time to, to understand that. And so I think that's in a lot of ways, that's what this film is about. Absolutely. So, so when you watch this film and you read it in that way, and like you were speaking to the sequel of her her ghost living happily, when we see Irina then at the end of the film and she's been attacked by this you know animal and and she's dead now, and then she appears as the panther to um, Oliver and Alice in the park. Do you think that that is a liberation for her to finally have that, even though she's dead? Or how, how do you read that? The fact that she comes back as a ghost, I see is that her pain has ended. Okay. Um, as, a, as a happy ghost, yeah. I mean, like she's young, she, her life is much better in death than it, uh, than it oh, was. Oh yeah, she's in, like chilling. Um, <laughs> she's good. <laughs> yeah, she's a, like a fairy princess. Mm. Like she's literally glowing. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and even though, you know, obviously the ending is tragic, but one trans reading that I can pull from this is um, I, I've read so many stories and accounts from other trans people who have said to their friends, um, if I'm ever not here anymore, for whatever reason, don't let them misgender me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, in at least let me be who I am in my death. Right. And that actually makes me look at this ending a little better and the fact that like they did end up mm. seeing who she was and and in the sequel they acknowledge it too they they acknowledge that like fuck she was right you yeah. know what i mean like she wasn't crazy <laughs> she wasn't, right yeah um and, and that's the last line of this movie basically um is like oh oh well, <laughs> yeah, well wishing to come to that sooner <laughs> Um, yeah yeah but but I do find some comfort in in knowing that she was at least able to die her authentic self and continue to be her authentic self in death and become a role model for a new generation of um, people who are struggling to figure themselves out as well yeah absolutely I I love and hate this ending, you know, because it's like, I I yeah. think reading it from that angle, and that is such a good reading, kind of makes it feel like, yes, you know, she she has been liberated from this pain, especially in the context of the sequel. It's like, okay, like, she's good. She's better now. Like, she's she's kind of, she's living in her truth. But I remember the first time I watched it, I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> no, come back. <laughs> But, um, you know, that's what I love about horror is the ability to kind of cloak different storylines and different contexts and subtexts in this case through the monstrous. Uh, and, yeah. and that's mm-hmm. really, really cool. Um, what do you think about just the not only the legacy that this film or rather franchise has left on the horror genre, but how do you think that um, queer identity through film has shifted for the better or the worse throughout the years hmm. well I, uh, I think it still has a very long way yeah. to go <laughs> i think we're still not at the full actualization of queer people in cinema mm-hmm. um you know we're still at the um either it's in the subtext or it's the stereotype 
you know, we still have yet to get to the point where there is a variety of authentic queer people mm. uh, being represented in these films. And I think the biggest hurdle that we still need to get beyond before we reach, you know, full representation is queer people telling their being funded and supported to tell their own stories because a lot of the films that touch upon queer themes or could touch upon queer themes are being told by non-queer yeah. people and so I, I think that is a huge element of why things have been so slow and I, and I do think there's something to be said about subtext is you know what I mean like in about the concept of not showing the monster is that you can project more onto that and so in a lot of ways when I look at films from this era, I sometimes think cinema was way more queer in the Hayes Code than it is today. Mm -hmm. And part of that was because they had to work in those themes artistically um, in, in more subtle, creative ways. Um, and the other part is because I am filling in the blanks myself. I'm bringing my own experience to mm -hmm. it. So if there's a film that puts in a, you know, a, a queer character, and, but it's this inauthentic representation of of the experience. Then it's like, oh, well, there's that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's it's easier to dismiss because you're like, well, they missed it. Right. If it was like hinted at, I you know I'm able to bring more to it. And so I think that that is another challenge to being able to um to to portray it. But uh, we've just I also think that as being part of the queer community, a lot of us have just um are sick of reading the subtext yeah, you know, I feel like our entire <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I feel like we've gotten really good yeah at it. You know what I mean like I feel like because like horror is extremely queer for that reason mm -hmm. um but it is because we had to read beyond the line um mm -hmm. but at the same time I think that doing that about any is also just being you know more emotionally intellectually complex you know what i mean like because you know i think that we should be looking not just for the queer themes we should be looking through all of the lenses of of a film and trying to see you know i i think that just without if you take the queer aspect out of it this is like such a feminist film like just such an empowering film the 40s in general i think is an extremely empowering time for women um, to see them in like such control uh, and, and power. And so, um, and then of course, like, and we didn't really talk about it much or towards the beginning we did about the immigrant experience. Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, uh, uh, that, is, that is a huge part of, of Arena, another big aspect of Arena's otherness in this film. And um, she, she herself, the, the actress, Simone Simone was from um, France, mm -hmm. she was French. And Val Luton is from Russia, or Yal Yalta. Which, um, and so he himself was an immigrant as well. And so I think that the, you know, the, the immigrant experiences represented um, a lot in his work. Um, unfortunately, we don't, I mean, there's, there are some, in um, Curse of the Cat People, there is a, a Black character, I believe he's Jamaican, mm. and he's, I forget the actor's name, but he was in a few of Luton's films. Um, and he's queer quoted as well i think pretty overtly yeah. so there are some lines of that movie where i'm like, what? <laughs> like this is like 
I like a really sharp turn to say I'm gay. I'm yeah. <laughs> the servant of the house is very queer. I was like, this is very like I appreciate it. It's really I find it really fascinating. Um, but the, yeah, there are definitely some some moments where it's like that could have so easily been not in the movie. Yeah, but it is that like balance of queer characters and then also characters that allow queer viewers to explore um their identity and non-queer viewers through the characters versus just a character that's been dropped into a piece of media because they're queer we need more representation um and it's a very interesting right. ongoing conversation i agree it does feel like we're kind of at this stage of like like the representation has ebbed and flowed throughout the years and like the way like the mm-hmm. sweet spot has been kind of hard to find i feel like we're kind of like film right now is a baby kind of like learning how to walk but we're not like fully walking <laughs> but we're like getting there we're wobbly but we're, <laughs> we're for, yeah we're making the progress. conversations are happening. I, I i truly believe that the 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 last component is just more queer people being in positions to tell their story absolutely yeah, yeah i couldn't yeah. i couldn't agree more and i'm i've been really happy to see how the horror genre has shifted just in the last 10 years um, and how the conversations Absolutely. have shifted um, pretty quickly, I would say. Um, and, and I'm I'm definitely excited for the future of the horror genre and beyond, um, you know, seeing not only horror be recognized further, but more queer stories being told through genre film and beyond. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, I think this is this was such a pivotal film, I think, in just how we speak about queer identity and identity analysis in general. Um, and trans identity through film and just the experience of analyzing a film like this informs um, so much future work from filmmakers. And so I think that that is really cool. Um, and yeah, I, I love this film and I'm I'm so happy that we got the chance to talk to you today about it. And yeah. knowing that you are just a super fan of this <laughs> film, I couldn't think of someone better <laughs> to talk to you with. Thank you. Yeah, no, I could easily talk another three hours <laughs> about this movie. Um, but yeah, I, I, I adore it so much. And I really appreciate being, having the opportunity to talk about it with you, especially through the lens of fashion. And I just, I love what you are doing with the podcast. Aww, thank you. Thank and you. I do want to mention that Kay is wearing her leopard print top today too. <laughs> so she's in character. Very catty. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I should have matched. Oh my god, I didn't get them. We all are in Prince, oh. though. Oh we my god. Are. I love it. Wow. <laughs> Kay has a matching notebook. Well, thank you so much, Kay, for joining us on the podcast. We seriously had the best time, and you are welcome back to talk about any of your favorite Val Luton films. Yeah. Anything. Come back anytime. Right. Cat related. Have you talked about Blood and Black Light? No, no, but I would love to. We actually haven't done oh, a Giallo episode, and I would absolutely love to do a Giallo episode. Yeah. Yeah, because that's another like perfect right in the fashion world. Oh my world. goodness. So um, fun, so stylish. Yeah. Amazing lighting. We'll definitely have to do that one with you. <laughs> yeah, it's so pretty. It's such a pretty movie. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you yes. again. I, I had such a great time. Oh, uh, yes. So did we. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation just as much as we did. Maybe learned a few things or two, got inspired to dress up like a cat or a panther um in your day-to-day <laughs> life 
Um, <laughs> don't forget to follow us on. Do not do not stalk anyone. <laughs> yeah, don't stalk anyone. <laughs> but like, you can wear a cool outfit. Stalking is bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at to die for podcast and on Twitter at die podcast. That is D Y E. And next time you go into your closet, remember that your pieces could also be to die for.